Welcome to Nostalgia Death Trip 2000. Uh, since this is uh, the first episode, I should probably lay out uh, you know, the general idea of the podcast, which is pretty simple. It's just to watch a bunch of horror movies from the 2000s and then just uh, ramble on about them. But I, uh, I specifically wanted to do horror movies from the 2000s because it's uh, generally understood to be a pretty disreputable era for horror films and, uh, you know, for American culture as a whole. But, uh, you know, 2000 to 2009 was uh, really my adolescence. I was uh, 11 years old in the year 2000. And by 2009, I was a young man of 20. And uh, like many adolescent men, I was a depraved maniac, obsessed with uh, seeing as many acts of violence and horrific shit as I could. So uh, I watched a lot of these movies uh, when they first came out. And um, doing this podcast will uh, give me a chance to revisit them and uh, review some of the raw material that uh, constituted my formative years. And, uh, you know, maybe give me a chance to... uh, figure out where things went so horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, Anyway, today we're talking about James Isaac's 2002 Jason X. Coming soon. He is an unstoppable killing machine. What the hell is going on? Jason Voorhees! Guys, it's okay, he just wanted his machete back! Uh Uh-oh. Jason X. I don't think he's out there. Why don't you stick your head out and have a peek? Rated R coming soon. This is the tenth installment of the Friday the Thirteenth franchise, and uh, bearing that in mind, the X in Jason X presumably indicates the Roman numeral for ten. But if you are Old enough to recall the early 2000s, you may remember just how cool the letter X was. Uh, You may have had an AOL instant messenger screen name that was like X, uh, you know, Rip Bongs 420X, or you might have been into the X games, or you might have thought that uh, an image of of a guy in a suit with X's for eyes and like a zipper for a mouth uh, was cool and uh, said something about uh, conformity or something. Uh, you know, you may or may not know what I'm talking about. So before we get into the film itself, uh, I'll talk a little bit about the production history of the film and the franchise up to this point. Now, I wasn't about to rewatch all the Friday the 13th movies in preparation for this. Uh, I'm not taking it that seriously. And to be perfectly honest... I've never been the biggest fan of the Friday the 13th movies. Uh, there are plenty of great movies about horny teenagers getting chopped up in the woods. And in my humble opinion, most of them aren't Friday the 13th. So I didn't go through all of the previous nine installments of this series before rewatching Jason X. But I did take the time to watch the movie immediately preceding Jason X, which is... Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday from uh, 1993 and directed by Adam Marcus. So there was an almost 10-year gap between Jason Goes to Hell and Jason X. And Jason Goes to Hell is a a very bizarre movie. 
I would like to mention that as a young kid, the VHS cover of Jason Goes to Hell was one of the scariest VHS covers in all of Blockbuster. I would run by it in the aisle. And the cover is a chrome hockey mask uh, with a kind of demonic worm snaking in and out of the eyes of the mask. And uh, the background is all fire because, you know, Jason is in hell. And, uh, you know, just thought I should mention uh, this horrifying image uh, emblazoned on my brain uh, since my childhood. Anywho, Jason Goes to Hell is in some ways much more bizarre than Jason X. Uh, Jason Goes to Hell starts with the classic setup. You know, young, sexy woman goes on an ill-advised trip to Camp Crystal Lake. She uh, checks into a cabin, and of course, you know what's going to happen, and they do a lot of obvious formulaic fake-outs that are kind of like winks to the audience, like shots where she opens and closes the mirrored door of a medicine cabinet. And, you know, you're just waiting for Jason to appear. Uh, but he doesn't, um, at least not at first. Uh, it isn't until the woman gets naked to take a shower uh, that he shows up. And, you know, her getting naked functions almost as uh, like ritual invocation of Jason. He appears and uh, starts trying to slash this woman up uh, in her towel. She uh, sets off running into the woods. Jason follows. They come to a clearing. Boom. It's a sting. Floodlights turn on. Armed FBI agents pop up from the brush and open fire. And Jason is eviscerated and presumably killed. They blow him up and his head goes flying off. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> they... <laughs> So they bring Jason to a morgue after that. And uh, they're performing an autopsy on him. I guess they needed to determine the cause of death. Um, so they're doing the autopsy. This is actually a great scene. The guy performing the autopsy uh, notices that Jason's heart is still beating. And inexplicably, as if by hypnosis, he grabs the heart off the tray and just starts chomping into it like it's a cheeseburger. And this is uh, how we learn that uh, Jason, the entity, uh, Jason, you know, he's not a man, he's not a zombie, he's not a ghost, uh, but rather, you know, actually surprise, he's some kind of demonic worm that can uh, parasitically be transferred from host to host by the mouth. Uh, <laughs> it's a completely absurd premise and has the effect of Jason himself not being in the movie for most of the runtime. It's, it's pretty awful. Uh, it's boring, though. There is a great scene where a guy melts and, you know, his jaw gets like stuck to the floor and uh, he, he's melting and he tries to pull himself up and the jaw rips off his head. So uh, if you like body melt stuff, uh, you know, there's at least one good scene. <laughs> but in the end, uh, when Jason is uh, summarily sent to hell by the heroes, the last shot of the movie is the infamous hockey mask laying on the sand, and oh my goodness, what a twist. Freddy Krueger's knife-fingered glove reaches out to pull the mask underground with him, presumably to hell. And, you know, the idea was, obviously there's going to be a Freddy versus Jason movie, but, uh, you know, that actually wouldn't materialize until after Jason X. And it's, it's because Freddy versus Jason got bogged down in development that they decided they needed to do something with Jason before he slipped from public awareness. So they kicked around some ideas, and eventually some creative genius was like, what about outer space? And, you know, to be fair, 
there really aren't very many horror movies that take place in space. Uh, and by the time Jason X came about, there'd already been a few horror franchises that had gone to space. You know, there'd been Leprechaun in space, uh, Hellraiser went to space. Uh, so I guess, you know, it wasn't the craziest idea, uh, I imagine. You know, not surprisingly, Jason X was the first screenwriting effort by Todd Farmer, who uh, also went on to write the 2011 Nicolas Cage movie, Drive Angry, which uh, I know some people are uh, pretty emphatic fans of. And uh, again, not surprisingly, Jason X was the directorial debut of James Isaac. Uh, James Isaac actually had a pretty cool career doing special effects prior to Jason X. Uh, I mean, he'd worked on Return of the Jedi, which, to be honest, I don't really give a shit about, but uh, he also worked on the uh, special effects for the David Cronenberg movies, The Fly, uh, Naked Lunch, and Existence, which, you know, have some of the greatest practical effects in any movie ever. Uh, If you've never seen David Cronenberg's Existence, I uh, really recommend that you do. It's a fantastic movie, and uh, you know it revolves around people that play on this virtual reality video game system. That's like this this like biotech big lump of flesh, and you you plug a very umbilical look umbilical cord looking tube into an orifice in your spine, and then you uh, massage the knobs of the lump to play the game. Um, you know, unfortunately, it came out in 1999, so it doesn't fall under the purview of this show. But uh, yeah, you know, it's it's a great movie. And uh, David Cronenberg mentored James Isaac during the uh, production of Jason X. And, uh, you know, he has a cameo in it as well. Um, in the early 2000s, David Cronenberg, I think, had a little less of the auteur credibility he has today and uh, I, in fact, met him at a Fangoria horror convention, uh, you know, among the likes of such luminaries as Bruce Campbell from Evil Dead and uh, Bill Mosley, who uh, played Chop Top in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, uh, which is an exquisite film, by the way. As for uh, the cast, uh, I don't really think there's anyone that notable. Kane Hodder plays Jason, as he did in the previous, like, four movies. Everyone else is pretty much an unknown. Uh, Some of them were on some sci-fi show called Andromeda, uh, which I know nothing about, and uh, frankly, I have no desire to know. So uh, getting to the plot of Jason X, uh, you know, my watching of Jason Goes to Hell was truly in vain because none of the demonic worm stuff or the being in hell stuff has any bearing on the plot of Jason X at all. It's, uh, It's really something of a soft reboot. Uh, so Jason X begins at uh, Camp Crystal. Uh, Jason X begins not at Camp Crystal Lake, but at Crystal Lake Research Facility in the year of the future, 2008. Of course, uh, the year we would come to associate with the election of President Barack Obama and uh, the subprime mortgage crisis. But of course, uh, we didn't know about any of that stuff yet, and uh, we just imagined it as basically, you know, things were fine. Uh, there was slightly more chrome and, uh, you know, Jason was around. So, so watch out, you know, that was the biggest of our worries, uh, you know, that and Islamic fundamentalism, uh, Jason has been captured and brought to the research facility with the intention of being studied against the wishes of our heroine government scientist, Rowan LaFontaine, uh, portrayed by Alexa Doig, 
Uh, I'm not really sure how to pronounce it. D-O-I-G. Uh, Deutsch. Uh, you may know her from Andromeda. <laughs> anyway, she insists Jason must be destroyed to protect humanity. Uh, her superior, who was played in uh, this great cameo by David Cronenberg, you know, insists that uh, Jason's regenerative tissue cries out for more research, you know, and they need a, you know, figure out how he has this ability to, uh, you know, regrow and reanimate, you know, after being killed so many times. Um, so Rowan tries to convince Cronenberg's character to at least cryogenically freeze Jason. And, uh, you know, he refuses. And, and Cronenberg, who supposedly wrote his own dialogue in the scene, comes out with the great line, uh, I don't want him frozen. I want him soft. Anyway, wouldn't you know it, Jason breaks containment and uh, begins killing everyone in sight. Cronenberg uh, gets impaled, and our heroine Rowan is mortally wounded, yet avails to initiate the process of cryogenically freezing Jason, uh, freezing herself as well. Uh, flash forward, uh, we later learn it's been about 500 years, and the rest of the movie takes place in the year 2455 so you know we're pretty far out there um earth has been destroyed by environmental catastrophe uh no surprise there and humanity has survived to live on uh on the unimaginatively named earth 2 and uh you know they're also zipping around the universe with interstellar spaceships and whatnot uh yeah uh, just you know on the topic of earth 2 if you remember the christopher nolan movie interstellar you know there's this whole thing how uh, each of a group of astronauts have been sent to a different planet that uh, you know they predict these planets might be hospitable to human life, and uh, you know they only have a one-way ticket, so once they're on the planet, they're trapped there. And uh, you know Matthew McConaughey and the other characters are like going planet to planet to like find out if any of the uh, planets turned out to be hospitable, and they uh, finally come to the planet where uh, Matt Damon's character has been trapped because it's this uh, unlivable rock planet and, uh, you know, he's doomed to die there and he's gone insane and he basically tries to kill uh, Matthew McConaughey and the rest of the crew. (laughs) And uh, I always thought a much better ending to that movie would have been that Matt Damon successfully killed all the other astronauts and the last shot is just him pacing back and forth on the rock planet, muttering Earth 2, Earth 2, Earth 2 to himself. Uh, you know, I think that would have been a much uh, better ending. Anyway, you know, so we're 500 years in the future. You know, we've got spaceships and everything. And, you know, all the, all the spaceships and the laboratory sets, which I uh, remembered as being hideously low budget and tacky, you know, are, are in fact pretty hideously low budget and tacky, but, you know, they actually kind of have a charming tactility and shittiness. You know, there's, there's kind of a charm to the shittiness. Uh, if you ever saw <laughs> Ad Astra, you know, that uh, the James Gray movie with Brad Pitt, uh, it also takes place in the future. And uh, in the future, a base has been established on the moon uh, but when we go there, it's just kind of like an enclosed subterranean strip mall with a subway, you know, like a, like a subway sandwiches location. And like there's a Mars base they go to and it's just like a red alleyway with a mangy stray dog. Uh, I just thought that was great. And, um, you know, a subway sandwiches franchise or a mangy stray dog would not be out of place in the settings of uh, Jason X, uh, which 
notably a lot of which was uh, filmed on a decommissioned military facility outside of Toronto. So yeah, you know, we're 500 years in the future, Jason's still frozen, and uh, a crew of uh, pouty, perky, nubile student scientists who uh, look and act an awful lot like summer camp counselors show up in a shiny vinyl and mesh knitwear, you know, very Y2K aesthetic. One of them is a sexy android and they have funny names like Azrael and Surinan and uh, they come across the frozen bodies of Rowan and Jason. So of course they decide to bring them both back on the ship and uh, using their advanced medical technology of uh, swarming healing nanobots set about reviving and regenerating them with the uh, intention of selling Jason to uh, some kind of circus or something. I, I, I don't really remember. Apparently, people 500 years in the future are still aware of Jason Voorhees and are willing to pay big money to see him. So probably a bit of a wish fulfillment on the part of the producers. But that's, you know, why they have to bring him back on the ship and bring him back to life and, you know, all, all that stuff. Anyway, so... At this point, we're about 30 minutes into the movie and uh, things have settled down enough that everybody goes off to their cabins and starts fucking. Uh, the professor, who is like the leader of the students, is having kinky cross-dressing sex with one of the students and she's like twisting his nipple with a surgical clamp and you know the sexy android takes off her top and her, her like nipples fall off. You know, like this kind of like weird thing. It's it's very Cronenberg, very uh, like mechanical animals era. Uh, Marilyn Manson, and it seems that uh, all the you know rampant hanky panky aboard the ship actually awakens Jason. Uh, he starts twitching to life, and he literally jolts upright on the operating table just as one of the women elsewhere in the ship is having an orgasm. So uh, you know Jason's up, and uh, pretty soon we get our first great kill in the movie, which is uh, Jason dunking a woman's head into a sink of liquid nitrogen and then smashing her frozen head against the metal table, shattering it into a million pieces. Uh, this is pretty much the best part of the movie. Uh, as a kid, this was like the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. Uh, truly sublime vision uh, that is still never very far from my mind. But uh, yeah, it's, it's all pretty much downhill from here, you know. So Jason's awake. Uh, he's killed again. And, you know, we're off to the races. Uh, Jason starts killing everyone on board. Uh, by and large, the kills are pretty boring. Just your typical hacking and slashing. Uh, there's one scene where Jason stumbles into a virtual reality holodeck you know, simulator. And two of the scientists are playing some kind of virtual reality game where they're wearing combat gear and hunting alien dinosaur creatures with plasma rifles. And Jason shows up and they think he's part of the game and they turn off the game and, and they're both sitting in the dark hunched over their little gaming devices, which is... a good little prescient vision of the future but uh you know of course jason is not part of the game he is in fact very real and uh he slices them up as he is inclined to do uh at this point in the movie uh you know things kind of shift gears to be a kind of military thriller uh there's like space marines on board the ship and they go off to kill jason and you know jason goes stealth mode he's lurking in the shadows he's snapping necks and doing silent executions, slitting throats with his machetes and whatnot. And soon, you know, soon enough, all the Marines have been dispatched and our hapless scientists are left to fend for themselves. 
So, you know, eventually the uh, sexy android character shows up uh, dual wielding some big futuristic guns and blows Jason's head off. Uh, of course, everyone thinks he's dead and they're no longer in danger, but as luck would have it, the uh, healing nanobots are inadvertently activated and they heal Jason by turning him into some kind of cyborg Jason uh, that's come to be known as Uber Jason. So he's like part metal, you know, he has a metal mask and he has like jacks from Mortal Kombat metal arms uh, and he's bulletproof. So when the sexy android tries to shoot him again, he just punches her head off. Uh, in general, I always enjoy when a movie introduces a like uber version of its villain. I always enjoyed this in uh, the Resident Evil games where an enemy gets like progressively more mutated and powerful every time you fight them. Uh, unfortunately in Jason X, Uber Jason really doesn't do very much and uh, they don't really do a great job of conveying the fact that in his Uber state he's really gotten any more uh, proficient or spectacular in his uh, ability to kill people. Anyway, they, they blow Uber Jason out of the ship or something and then he punches a hole in the wall and like depressurizes the ship and one of the girls gets sucked into space through a like basketball-sized hole. <laughs> and right before she dies, she goes, this sucks on so many levels, you know, because she's going to get sucked through the hole in the side of the spaceship. And there's a lot of like these corny jokes in the movie. It's very Joss Whedon. So it's real like pervert dork cornball shit. Anyway, you know, you don't even get to see the girl get like sucked through the hole. You just see like a little chunk of meat. Uh, you know, they really must have blown the budget on that liquid nitrogen kill and... You know, I I don't know. I mean, more stuff happens. They need to, like, fix a control panel or something. I mean, who cares? The The important part is that at some point, as a diversionary tactic, they trick Jason into entering uh, the VR simulation holodeck, and they generate a simulation of Camp Crystal Lake in 1980. Uh, and it even has the, like, ch 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 and of course, you know, there's two giggling, topless teenager girls and they literally say, we love to smoke pot and have premarital sex. You know, it's really corny and self-reverential and uh, they get into sleeping bags and, and then there's the big sight gag that it, you know, cuts to Jason and he's swinging one girl around in her sleeping bag and using her to beat the other girl to death in her sleeping bag. And, you know, to me, this is, this is actually the most poignant part of the movie. Um, but you know, we'll get back to that. Um, anyway, one of the Marines, I, I forgot, you know, one of the Marines mentions to come back to life. Uh, you know, he sacrifices himself to kill Jason. The ship blows up and, you know, Jason crashes into earth too, like a meteor or, you know, or something. I, you know, it doesn't matter. Honestly, that the rest of the movie doesn't matter. I'm, I'm, I'm done with summarizing the movie. That's it. That's the end of Jason X. Like I said, the scene in the holodeck is, uh, really where my interest lies and, you know, what I find interesting about it is that, you know, Jason, he's in the simulation of Camp Crystal Lake in 1980. And, you know, first of all, there's a beautiful moment when he stops and looks around at the woods that he's suddenly found himself surrounded by. And it's just like a second, but it's the only time in the movie where there's like an organic natural setting uh, you know, the whole movie is all like plastic and metal and spaceships and stuff. And there's something, you know, really childlike about it. And Jason has always had this childlike quality. Uh, you know, he is supposed to be mentally incapacitated. He's really supposed to be like Lenny from Of Mice and Men. I mean, 
you know, he's a sympathetic character in some ways. And the whole thing from the beginning is that he was a victim. The whole reason why he ever got in the business of killing horny teenagers is because horny teenagers let him drown at summer camp when he was a kid. So like, you know, there's this, there's this famous book uh, called Men, Women, and Chainsaws by this film critic, Carol Clover. And the main idea of the book is that, you know, she's pushing against the reading of slasher films as being misogynistic, anti-sex, uh, puritanical. Uh, and instead she claims that slashers actually have a kind of feminist bent because they encourage young men to identify with the victims who are, you know, more often than not women. And that, you know, through this vicarious experience of fear and vulnerability, you know, the male audience is actually kind of assuming the experience of femininity, at least the aspect of femininity that is centered around the fear of being murdered. And, um, you know, I think it's a pretty compelling and counterintuitive notion, but, uh, you know, it maybe underestimates how much gratification people derive from uh, sexualized homicidal fantasies. <laughs> and in fact, I was looking this up on the Jason Voorhees Wikipedia page, and in 2005, you know, notably during the heyday of the War on Terror, uh, California State University media psychology lab did a survey of Americans aged uh, from 16 to 91 on the psychological appeal of movie monsters. And, uh, you know, I'm reading from the Jason Voorhees Wikipedia page about this study, which goes on to say many of the characteristics, uh, characteristics associated with Jason Voorhees were appealing to the participants in the survey. Jason was considered an unstoppable killing machine. And uh, participants were impressed by the cornucopic feats of slicing and dicing a seemingly endless number of adolescents and the occasional adult. Out of the 10 monsters used in the survey, which included vampires, Freddy Krueger, Frankenstein's monster, Michael Myers, Godzilla, Chucky, Hannibal Lecter, King Kong, and the alien, Jason scored the highest in all the categories involving killing variables. (laughs) whatever that means. Further characteristics that appealed to the participants included Jason's, quote, immortality, his apparent enjoyment of killing, and his superhuman strength. So, you know, as it should come as no surprise to anybody, America loves an immortal, unstoppable killing machine. And I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that in those heady war on terror days, those uh, classic American virtues of innocence and uh, sadistic homicidal violence were uh, really getting quite the boost. And I think it could be argued that Jason is really the perfect figure to encapsulate that whole dynamic. Because like I said, he's a victim, but he's also a killing machine. So he's kind of like a justified killing machine. And you know, in those days, we're doing a lot of what we consider justified killing. Uh, you know, really in all days we're doing that. That being said, you know, the psychocultural resonance of the movie was, uh, largely lost on the movie going public and, uh, Jason X was a box office failure and, uh, people presumably still thought it was stupid to make Jason, uh, be in outer space. But, you know, going back to that scene where Uber Jason is in the hollow deck of Camp Crystal Lake, you know, it's like, You know, this franchise in 2002 is like 20 years old. And in the plot of the movie, Jason is 500 years old. And, you know, like whatever, 10,000 light years away from Earth. And, you know, Earth doesn't even exist anymore. 
Camp Crystal Lake doesn't even exist anymore. And he's just trapped in the simulation of the only world and the only behavior he ever knew, which is, you know, killing horny teenagers in the woods. But it, but it's not even real. You know, it's a simulation. It, it's just an illusion. Even the kill in that scene itself feels artificial. You know, there's no blood. There's no actual bodies. Uh, Jason himself is, at this point, like 75% cyborg. And he's just smashing two sleeping bags together. You know, there's a sense like he's just going through the motions. Uh, he's just having like this like behavioral response to stimuli. And there's a sense of exhaustion and of redundancy. And I think it's very emblematic of the whole endeavor of Jason X, which, you know, was basically slapping together a movie because uh, New Line had been sitting on Jason Voorhees as a piece of intellectual property for 10 years. I wanted to raise a profile of the character. You know, supposedly there were discussions about some of the other scenarios. I thought maybe Jason goes to Antarctica, Jason fights drug dealers or something, and they just settled on Jason goes to space. And I also think, you know, this whole this whole scene in the in the holodeck is just very emblematic of Jason as a character. You know, he's being tricked and and I think it's very fitting that in the beginning of the movie, you know, Jason's captured. You know, we see him shackled. He has manacles on him. I mean, he's a prisoner. And he's been captured to be scientifically tortured so they can study how he's able to uh, regenerate his own flesh. And uh, the ability to regenerate your own flesh is really just a capacity for being tortured without dying, which is to say being tortured for eternity. And Jason just can't die. And, you know, no matter how many times he gets killed, he just he always, always, always comes back. Uh, you know, he's trapped in samsara. He's trapped in the cycle of death and rebirth. And maybe that's, and maybe, you know, maybe that's the reason why Jason's homicidal behavior <coughs> is activated by the sexual act. It's not that he's enforcing some kind of puritanical anti-sex ethos. It's that to let the sexual act come to completion is to risk the possibility of procreation and the experience of suffering that being born entails. Because Jason knows, maybe even more than any of his victims, that life is suffering, and that to be alive is to be tortured, and that to be unable to die is a terrible, terrible curse. Anyway, thanks for listening.